we're starting um, like a mini series tonight and we're going to um, be looking at the book of Haggai and um, you know like seeing what what God was saying to Israel through him and how it applies to us and uh, what we're going to do tonight by way of introduction is um, we're going to be putting Haggai in his historical context so seeing the history that led up to the time in which he lived and then having seen the historical context we're then going to see how what he was saying to them then how it applies to us as Christians who are part not of Israel as a nation but are part of the church and so the first thing that we've got to do is we've got to do a, a, a brief kind of shoot through the history, uh, you know, very, very quickly of Israel in the Old Testament so we can see uh, exactly the historical context of when Haggai um, actually came on the scene. Now, obviously, after the Old Testament Bible survey, I know I could, I mean, I could pick on any one of you, like, just, just like that, and, and you could all, you know, sort of like just pour out what I'm going to say now. But just in case one or two of you have forgotten any of the details, I'll, I'll actually go over just, just to refresh uh, your memory. Now, you remember after Israel actually came into the Promised Land, into Canaan, um, you had the, the time of the judges and uh, eventually God raised up kings and you had Saul and then you had David and then you had Solomon and, and Israel kind of like as a nation it reached almost that was its golden time the time of David and the time of Solomon but you'll remember that just after the reign of Solomon there was you know sort of like a kind of a, a civil war and there was a big split and Israel divided into two separate kingdoms. You had the northern kingdom, which after that was called Israel, and then you had the southern kingdom, which was called Judah. And uh, the northern kingdom were where the ten tribes were. Judah was in the south, the ten tribes in the north. Obviously, remember all the time, the tribe of Levi, because that was the priestly tribe, they didn't have any land of their own. So you had the ten, uh, the ten tribes in the north and Judah down in the south. Now, the northern kingdom, that was the rebel kingdom. That, that split shouldn't have really happened and they, they set up an alternative you know, kind of line of kings, which they should never have done. And you'll remember that eventually Israel, the northern kingdom, the ten tribes, they went from bad to worse. And eventually, God kept warning them that judgment would come upon them if they didn't repent. Um, and eventually, and you'll remember, the ultimate judgment that God could lay on any of his tribes was that they would be taken off into captivity. And you'll remember that eventually the day came when the Assyrians invaded and the northern kingdom, these ten tribes, Israel, were taken off into captivity by the Assyrians. And of course we noted, didn't we, that those ten tribes, they're actually referred to now as the ten lost tribes. Israel, the northern kingdom, vanished. It never came back, it was never restored, and, and hence the ten lost tribes. They'll be back, um, obviously, um, in the Great Tribulation and uh, in the thousand year reign of Jesus, but the tribes were lost, taken into captivity, virtually completely destroyed. 
gone for good. Then, a hundred years later, the southern kingdom, which obviously by then was the only one remaining, Judah, down in the south, eventually they, they were continuing to go from bad to worse as well. God warned them through the prophets, and eventually they too were taken into captivity, and it was through the Babylonian Empire. And so the Babylonians invaded, uh, the king at the time was Nebuchadnezzar, and um, the southern kingdom, Judah, were taken into captivity. They were taken out of the land into captivity. And uh, that captivity lasted as the prophet Jeremiah had prophesied years before that that, would, that, that was a captivity that lasted for 70 years. Now, shortly after the captivity took place, Nebuchadnezzar came in, Babylonian Empire, carted Judah off, all right. Shortly after, the Babylonian Empire fell to the Medo-Persian Empire. Uh, the Medo-Persian Empire being a coalition of the Median Empire and the Persian Empire, all right. So the Babylonian, it was a takeover, the Babylonian Empire, which was the then world power crumbled and was taken over by the Medo-Persian Empire. And that happened when the Medo-Persian Empire was being led by a king called Cyrus. Now, once Cyrus established himself, the 70-year captivity was, the 70 years of the captivity was drawing to a close. And what Cyrus did is that he sent, he began to send some of the Jews back into Jerusalem so that they could resettle the city and so that they could rebuild the temple. Now you remember Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed the temple, was completely gone. And now Cyrus, he sends the Jews back and he says to them, rebuild your city and rebuild the uh, temple. And what happened was he sent at that time around 50,000 Jews back to resettle the land. And what he also did is um, all, all the plunder that had been taken when the temple was destroyed, because the Medo-Persian Empire had taken over, they had all the plunder that Nebuchadnezzar had stored. And Cyrus gives it back to the Jews. And he says, here's everything from the temple, all the ornaments and the blah, blah, blah. Take it back and rebuild your land. Right. Now, Cyrus made a particular Jew the governor of Jerusalem. And this was a guy called Zerubbabel. Now, Zerubbabel was the grandson of Jehoiakim. And Jehoiakim, you will of course remember, was Israel's last but one king before the Babylonian captivity took place. So Zerubbabel, who Cyrus makes the governor of Jerusalem while it's being rebuilt and resettled, he was in the Messianic line. This guy, although he's only made the governor, had there not been a captivity, he would have been the next in line to be king anyway. So we see the messianic line 
because of course this is all the line of kings that came from David that eventually led to the birth of Jesus. So Zerubbabel is the governor and he would have been king had circumstances been slightly different. He was a direct descendant of David and the high priest of the time who was called Joshua. Now obviously don't mix him up with the Joshua who took over from Moses. That was hundreds of years before. But the high priest, Joshua, is also sent as well. So Cyrus, the king of the Medo-Persian Empire, is ending the captivity of the Jews. He's sending 50,000 odd back into Jerusalem. The city is destroyed the temple is destroyed and he's saying to them, rebuild your land. And he puts Zerubbabel, who should have been king, as the governor, all right, and Joshua, the high priest of the Jews at the time, is sent with him. And the first thing they set out to do was to rebuild the temple. Not the land, the temple. Because that came first. Because the temple was the place where God dwelt. Now then, after a while, the work that Zerubbabel and Joshua the high priest were leading the people to do on the temple, eventually it lapsed. There was opposition, they hit lots of problems. And the Jews who were now back in Jerusalem, they hit all these problems and the work kind of ground to a halt. The, the problems overcame them, all right? Now, 15 years passed, and the leader of the Medo-Persian Empire is now Darius the Mede. Uh, Cyrus has gone, he's dead, he's been superseded, he's, you know, sort of like taken over by Darius the Mede, all right? And what happens is, Darius, who is still kind of, you know, sort of like pro what's going on in Jerusalem, um, he kind of supports the work, and at this point, two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, are raised up by God with the specific purpose of getting Zerubbabel and Joshua and the people in Jerusalem back on the job of rebuilding the temple. So Cyrus has sent 50,000 Jews back into Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, rebuild the city. They start with the temple. That's the most important thing. After a while, the work stops because of opposition. And that time period is all covered in the book of Ezra and chapters 5 and 6. That's the time period that Ezra covers in his chapters there. And um, so 15 years pass, the work has just, you know, kind of gone to pot. Uh, Darius the Mede has taken over from Cyrus. And God raises up Haggai and Zechariah, two prophets who work together. Uh, they each have a book in the Bible. And uh, they were raised up to encourage Zerubbabel, the governor, or the man who should have been king, and Joshua the high priest, and the people, Haggai and Zechariah, encouraging them to get back to work on restoring the temple. Just to follow it through, 
60 years after Haggai and Zechariah, Ezra, now Ezra, his history has included what had happened before the time of Haggai as well, but Ezra came 60 years later, and Ezra led a second wave of returning Jews to Jerusalem, and then shortly after he arrived, another character, Nehemiah, came on the scene, and they rebuilt the walls. And that really kicked off Jerusalem as a city being rebuilt. And Ezra and Nehemiah were aided by another prophet called Malachi, and his is the last book in the Old Testament. So, what you've basically got, Zerubbabel and Joshua, the high priest, are leading God's people in rebuilding the temple. The date, incidentally, is around 536 BC, all right? The work has ground to a halt because of opposition that they were facing, and you can get the details of that in Ezra chapters 5 and 6. And the work having ground to a halt, God raises up Haggai and Zechariah so that they can be prophets to the people to get them back on course. Say, hey, come on, the work has halted, the temple has got to be rebuilt, so let's get back to the work we should have been doing. So, what you've basically got, the, the push behind this book that we're going to be looking at, Haggai, it's a very short book, two chapters. The push behind it is that you have a prophet who is raised up in order to motivate God's slacking people to rebuild the temple. They started, they stopped, they slacked. It was too hard for them. They wilted, they gave up. A prophet is raised up to get them back to the job they should have been working on all the time. So that's the push. Haggai is there with Zechariah, but we're looking at Haggai's book. Haggai is there urging God's people, motivating them to really be diligent in the work of building the temple. Now, that's the historical context. Having got the history, what we must move on to do now is to establish the symbolism. And in establishing the symbolism of the temple, because the Old Testament, uh, sorry, the, the people had to rebuild the temple, and remember, I've often put it like this, um, like in the New Testament you have, if you like, the doctrine, in the Old Testament we have the doctrine acted out for us in history. So it's almost like, if you think of the New Testament as being the script, the Old Testament is the movie and we can actually see it being acted out for us in history. And so the point is that although, obviously, Old Testament history is history, it's not mere symbolism, it's not mythology or anything like that, it's actual history, but it's God working in history in such a way that it becomes for us a symbol of the truth that God is speaking to, to us as the New Testament church. And so, Therefore, in establishing what the biblical symbolism of the temple is, because remember they were 
being urged by prophets to get back to rebuilding the temple. When we establish what the symbolism of the temple is, we therefore establish how it applies to us as New Testament Christians in uh, the latter part of the 20th century. So now what we're going to do, and we're going to be all over the place in the Bible tonight, what we're going to do now is we're going to go through the Old Testament so that we can see the emerging symbolism of what the temple was all about. Now if you go to Exodus 25 and uh, we're going to be starting here not with the temple but with what in the Old Testament was called the tabernacle. Uh, just go to Exodus 25 and if you find verse 8 now this is Israel at the beginning of the wilderness wanderings they've come out of Egypt they're heading on the way to Canaan to the promised land but they've got 40 years in the wilderness and it's this is the beginning of these 40 years of wilderness wandering and uh, this is God speaking to Moses and what he says to Moses is this have them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them make this tabernacle and a tabernacle it literally means a tent of meeting that that's what it means so this is a tent you know like giant marquee make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern that I will show you. Now what God is saying to Israel here, he's saying that as you wander through the wilderness, I'm going to actually live amongst you. And for starters, I'm going to live in a tent. And then he gives Moses the blueprint for this tent, the tent of meeting, the tabernacle. Um, if you go to uh, chapter 40, still in Exodus, chapter 40, and verse 34, and this is now the tabernacle has been completed, and it says, then the cloud, now you'll remember that as soon as they came out of Egypt through the wilderness, the way that the Lord led them is that by day he was a pillar of cloud and by night he was a pillar of fire. And uh, they moved according to what this pillar of cloud or fire was doing. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So now... Israel, the Jews have made this tent, this big tent, and here we have God moving into it. All right? So at this point in Israel's history, God is living in a tent. So they've come out of, Israel, uh, out of Egypt, they're going through the wilderness for 40 years, they're heading to Canaan, which is going to be their permanent home during this period in their history. God is living amongst them in a tent. 
Right, now if you go to, to, to Samuel now, because eventually the Jews got to the promised land. And 2 Samuel, chapter 7, and the first two verses. And uh, the king here is, uh, is, is King David. After the king was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said, the na he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a palace of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Now go to verse 12. Um, and then David's desire, all right, to build God a permanent house rather than a tent. Eventually God speaks to him. And uh, th this is what God says. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you when your days are over and you rest with your fathers I will raise up your offspring to succeed you that was Solomon who will come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom he is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever so here what we're having now is King David is saying, I'm living in a house, Lord. You're still living in a tent. I want you to have a house like I've got. And God speaks to him through Nathan and says, yeah, I am going to have a house like you've got, but uh, Solomon, your son, is going to build it. Um, go to, to Chronicles. And find chapter 5. And uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 5, and I'll read verse 1. Solomon has been given the blueprint for the temple in the same way that Moses had been given the blueprint for the tabernacle, and the work has now been finished. And uh, 2 Chronicles 5, verse 1. When all the work Solomon had done for the temple of the Lord was finished, he brought in the things his father David had dedicated the silver and gold and all the furnishings and he placed them in the treasuries of God's temple. Now go to verse 12. All the Levites who were musicians, Asaph, Heman, Jeduthun and their sons and relatives stood on the east side of the altar dressed in fine linen and playing cymbals, harps and lyres. They were accompanied by 120 priests sounding trumpets. The trumpeters and singers joined in unison as with one voice to give praise and thanks to the Lord. Accompanied by trumpets, cymbals and other instruments, they raised their voices in praise to the Lord and sang, He is good, his love endures forever. Then the temple of the Lord was filled with a cloud and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud 
for the glory of the Lord filled the temple of God. Now go over to chapter 7 and just the first three verses. Solomon has prayed a long prayer now, and this is, you know, sort of still when God is moving into the temple. When Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priests could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled it. When all the Israelites saw the fire coming down and the glory of the Lord above the temple, they knelt on the pavement with their faces to the ground and they worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, He is good, His love endures forever. Now, can you see that now God has moved into the temple? They built the tent and God moved into it. The cloud came on the tent, the glory of the Lord filled it. Now it's the temple a house as opposed to a tent and now the glory of the Lord the cloud fills the temple so what we're dealing with here when we're looking at the temple what we're looking at is where God lives we're looking at where God makes his home and we've gone from God not having a home amongst men to him having a tent and now we've gone to him having a temple, like a permanent house, as it were. Now we've got to go to Acts. And if you go to the Acts of the Apostles, and if you find chapter 17, and I'm going to read verse 24. And this is something that Paul says while he's preaching the gospel to some Greeks. Acts 17, verse 24. And he says, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hand. Read that again. The Lord does not live in temples built by hands. Now, what we're seeing here is that at the time of the Acts of the Apostles, and this is obviously after Jesus has died and been raised from the dead, we see now that God isn't living in the temple anymore, and we see that God is never going to live in a temple again. Paul is saying that is not the way it now is. And we've got to ask, why? Why is it that God moved into a tent, then he moved into the temple, but now, in New Testament times, God does not live in buildings in any way at all? And this is, of course, why uh, it's important for us to realise that, you know, that there should be, you know, I mean, sometimes Christians, they have buildings and they use the buildings for worship. That's okay, of course it is. But referring to these buildings as the house of the Lord or something, as if it's sanctified ground. That's completely not what the Bible says. God doesn't live in buildings anymore. And we've got to ask why. And the answer is because of Jesus. Now if you go to Colossians, find chapter 1, 
remembering all the time that what is in the Old Testament is a symbol of what was to come in the New Testament. What was in the Old Testament was a shadow. In the New Testament we have the reality, the thing of which the Old Testament was just a shadow of. Colossians 1 verse 15 and I'm going to read down to verse 20. And this is Paul talking about Jesus. And he says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Now here, here, here is Paul saying, Jesus is God. So the whole point, Jesus is God. For by him all things were created things in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. So obviously he is not one of the created things, is he? He created all things. He is God. Jesus was the man whom God became. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church, he is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And the important thing there is verse 19, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. The fullness of God dwelt in Jesus in the same way that the fullness of God had once dwelt in the tabernacle and then later on in the temple. And still in Colossians, but to uh, chapter 2 and verse 9, and Paul goes on to say, for in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And so what you've got here is that Paul is saying, and remember this is the same Paul who in Acts was saying God doesn't live in buildings made by men anymore, is because here we're seeing the reality of which the tabernacle and the temple were merely symbolic in the Old Testament. The tabernacle, the tent, was somewhere where God lived. He wanted to live amongst his people and through the wilderness his people were living in tents. So God lived in a tent. When they came into Canaan, their permanent home, they lived in houses, solid buildings. So then, God dwelt in a solid building. And can you see the picture is that God lives amongst men in a way that identifies with the circumstances in which they are in. Now the ultimate reality of which that was merely a symbol was this, that God became a man. In the Old Testament, when Israel lived in tents, so did God. He lived amongst them like they were living, in a tent. Then when they lived in solid buildings, he lived in a temple. 
he lived among them in the way that they were living. But when the reality, when Jesus came, what God ultimately does is God came to live amongst men in exactly the same way that men and women live. He became man. And so can you see that the temple, the tabernacle and the temple were Old Testament symbols of the fact that one day God was going to come and dwell amongst men in the ultimate way that could be amongst them and identify with them. That he was going to himself become a man. If you go to John's Gospel, chapter 1, I'm just going to read the first two verses, first of all. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Alright? Now, go to verse 14. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And that word dwelling there is the Greek word for a tabernacle. A literal translation would be, the word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. Alright? Go to chapter 2. And in verse 19... And look at what Jesus says here. Jesus said to them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. So can you see that here, Jesus refers, standing in the shadow of the temple in Jerusalem, he refers to the temple. And the Jews who are listening thinks he's referring to that physical temple when what Jesus was referring to was himself, his own body. Because the reason that the temple was there was that whereas under the old covenant God lived amongst his people in that temple, once Jesus came, once the new covenant came, once the reality came, it was clear that the temple was a shadow and the reality was the fact that it merely symbolised that God was going to come and live in another temple and it was going to be the temple of the body of the man that he became. So now we have the fulfilment completely of what the tabernacle and the temple in the Old Testament were. And the fulfilment of that symbolism was that now God has become a man. 
and hence in John's Gospel it says that, that the word tabernacled amongst us. God became a human being. So where we've gone now, where, where, we're seeing all this is to do with where does God live? Where does God make his home? And we've seen when Israel was in the wilderness and living in tents, God made his home in a tent. When Israel was in the promised land, living in houses, solid houses, then God lived amongst them, made his dwelling place the temple. But now it's gone one step further, and now God has made his dwelling place a man called Jesus, because God became a man, and that man was Jesus. So Jesus' body was the temple of the Holy Spirit. God, in all his fullness, lived in Jesus. And Jesus could contain that fullness of God for the simple reason he was God. He was himself the Lord God of Israel, the second person of the Trinity. So we've seen God lived in the tent, in the temple, and then ultimately in Jesus. But now we've got to go even further. And we're going to see that God hasn't even left it there. Because now we're going to see that God has another home and it is you and I individually as believers. If you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, seeing all these changes of address that God has. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18. And Paul says, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body. But he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own, you were bought with a price. Therefore honour God with your body. Now there, Paul is writing to individual believers and he's telling them individually not to be immoral. And he says, because your bodies individually, each one of you believers at Corinth, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Go to John, back to John, and John chapter 14. We can well understand that Jesus could be the temple in which God lived. But what an incredible thought that we individually can be as well. Find John 14, verse 15 to 18. This is Jesus speaking. He says, If you love me, you will obey what I command. 
That's how we know if we love Jesus, not by whether we seem to have feelings of love at any time, it's by being obedient. And he says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another counsellor to be with you forever, the Spirit of Truth. So here we have Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, saying, I'm going to pray to my Father, the first person of the Trinity, and he'll send the Holy Spirit of Truth, the third person of the Trinity. So there's the Trinity. Uh, the world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. So there is Jesus saying, look, the Holy Spirit is living with you, and the time is going to come, and it happened at Pentecost when they were baptised with the Spirit, when the Holy Spirit is going to live in you, not just with you, he's going to live in you. So here we see Jesus saying, believers have the Holy Spirit living within them. Now go to verse 23, and Jesus goes further. If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. I'll read that again. He's already said that the Holy Spirit is going to live in them because they're believers. Now he goes on to say, If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. So Jesus says, the Holy Spirit lives in you, and then he goes on to say, and my Father is going to live in you, and I am going to live in you. And what we now have is not just that the fullness of the triune God lived in Jesus as a man, and Jesus' uniqueness was that he was himself God, but now Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit now come to live in believers. And if you go back to Colossians, where we were earlier, and chapter 2, and verse 9 and 10. We saw verse 9, but now we're going to move on to, to verse 10. Paul says, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. So there's the fact that God lived in Jesus. God became a man called Jesus. But then in verse 10, Paul goes on to say, And you have been given fullness in Christ who is the head over every power and authority. So the Godhead lives in fullness in Jesus because Jesus is the second person of the Trinity who's become a man. But then Paul says, but that fullness of the Godhead that was in Christ, now that fullness is given to you. Because God lives in Jesus in his complete fullness. Jesus is big enough to hold the deity because Jesus was God himself. But it goes one step further because we believe in Jesus, because we're Christians. Then Jesus, who is himself indwelt by the fullness of God, comes himself to live in us with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. 
So where is there something very childlike in saying, where does Jesus live? He lives in my heart. It is quite literally true. Jesus lives in us. The Father lives in us. The Holy Spirit lives in us. So therefore, for that reason, God lived in the tabernacle. He lived in the temple. Then Jesus became the temple of the Holy Spirit. And now you and I individually are temples of the Holy Spirit. God lives in us as well. And that is why it's so important that we surrender our bodies to him so that our bodies are given to holiness rather than to sin. One more bit on this. Back to 1 Corinthians. And we want 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Because we've got one more place where God lives to go. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and going to read first of all verse 9 and then verse 16 to 17. Got to chuck a little bit of Greek in here for you. Paul says, For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Now, talking there about the temple. Now, the you there is plural. So, this we've already seen Paul telling the Corinthians that individually they're temples of the Holy Spirit and therefore they mustn't be immoral. But here, the you is plural. He's speaking to them as a church. Go on to verse 15. He says, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is sacred and you are that temple. Now all the way through there, the you is plural the word temple is singular. So what Paul is saying here is that the Corinthians as a church was the temple of God as well. So that God lived in them, not just individually, but God lived in them as the corporate church as well. And of course this is tremendously important. Because whereas, of course, Jesus, as a man, was big enough to hold the fullness of God without measure because he was himself God, when it comes to you and I, we can't hold the fullness of God in full measure because we're not God, we're created beings. But when you get the whole church corporately, and remember, ultimately, it's every believer who ever has lived is living now and is going to live in the future. That is the church in its entirety. So corporately, we as it were hold more of the Lord than we can do individually. And of course that is one of the reasons why it is so vital that we are part of a church. You know, so, so vital to understand that there's no such thing in the Bible as lone wolf Christianity. You cannot go it alone, all right, as a Christian. Go to 1 Peter. And 1 Peter chapter 2. And verse 4 and 5. 
And Peter says, as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house, temple, to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So there he's saying that relative to the church, each one of us are a living brick in the church and we need to be built up together forming a corporate church. So we've seen that God lives in us individually. Of course he does. We are individually the temple of God, but so are we the temple of God in an even wider way as the church. And for us, here we are, an individual church, but remember, at this moment in time, there are millions of other individual churches out there, all part of the temple of God that is the church. And remember as well that that extends through time, through history, to all the believers who have already with the Lord because they've lived and died already, but it also includes all those who are going to be saved, but who are yet, maybe not even born yet. So what we're seeing is that when we're asking, where does God live? We see that he lived in the tent, the tabernacle, then he lived in the temple, the permanent house, then he lived in Jesus, became a man, then he lives in each individual believer, and he lives, of course, in each individual church, as well as the church, as it were, in all its fullness throughout time and across the globe. And so what we've got here is that we can now tie down the symbolism that we need to take out of the fact that in Haggai we have a prophet who's raised up to get God's people back on the job of building the temple. A job that they'd been slacking on, all right? There was work to be done and they weren't doing it properly because as we're gonna see, other priorities had come in their lives. And, and Haggai is raised up to say, no, we've got to get our priorities right again. We've got to get back to work on the temple. And we can see now that the way that the messages through Haggai are going to relate to us is that for them it was, come on lads, we've got to build the temple, the physical temple here in physical Jerusalem. But we can see that for us the application is going to be, come on lads, we've got to build the temple, one, our own individual Christian lives, and two, our lives as part of the corporate church. And that's the symbolism. So in Haggai, as we go through the book, we're going to be being urged to get our priorities right so that we're one, really working on our individual Christian lives, temple aspect number one, and secondly, really working on our corporate life as a church, aspect of the temple number two. And of course, 
the outworking of a church must come out of the former. Because the point is, our relationship with God individually is always worked out in our relationships with each other corporately. There is no lone wolf Christianity. Therefore, these two are completely tied up to the extent that my Christian life, to the extent that that my life individually with the Lord is as it ought to be, then to that extent my life in relationship to my church is going to be as it ought to be. And you can't separate the two. And if our relationship with God isn't right, our relationship relative to the church isn't going to be right. Conversely, if our relationship to the church isn't right, we cannot then kid ourselves, well, but nevertheless, my relationship with God individually is right, because it isn't. Our corporate life together is the outworking of our individual relationship with the Lord. So, therefore, the picture here, all right, is that we're going to be seeing in the book of Haggai the challenge um, what, and the encouragement that God gave through the prophet and the application to us is building our own individual lives and playing each our individual part in building the life of our corporate existence as a church and that's the picture that um, we've got here. Now that is obviously the logical point now to move on to the actual messages that Haggai brought to God's people. That's the logical thing to do. But I'm not always logical, because I think there's something else that we need to do now that is far more interesting at this point. We'll get on to the actual text of Haggai next time. But we're going to go on a couple of digressions here. But they're relevant and they're fascinating as well. And we're going to be looking all about bodies. All right. We'll have a digression here about bodies. Um, we saw from 1 Corinthians 6 that Paul was saying to individuals that it's our actual physical bodies which are temples of the Holy Spirit. All right. And we're going to see something here um, that is, is brought out by the fact that the tabernacle or the tent preceded the temple or the permanent physical building. Um, and that the tabernacle, the tent, was temporary, whereas the temple was permanent. So the tent preceded the building. First came the tent, then came the building. The tent was temporary because they were only in the wilderness for 40 years. Whereas the houses, as it were, the temple became permanent because that was their normal life um, in, in Canaan. All right. And we're, we're going to see something fascinating about the very nature of, of the gospel. Now, if, if you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, get ready for a bit of Greek, but I'm going to make it so clear you'll hardly notice that it is Greek. All right. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Now then, I'm going to read, all right, verses 1 to 10. And then we're going to 
pick out some bits and pieces in there and I'm going to start showing you what it is I want to bring out. Just be noticing two things. Bear in mind tent and the fact that in the Greek dwelling always means a permanent building. Okay, right, now then. Now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. Because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now it is God who has made us for this very purpose, and he has given us the Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. So the fact you're born again means there's no doubt everything, you know, you're going to get to glory. No, no doubt at all. And the fact you've got the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of that, right? Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due to him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Now, the bits that I want to home in on, I'm just going to demonstrate this, that what the Bible does in regards to our physical bodies is that life down here is referred to as a tent. So your body as it stands now, and remember our bodies are contaminated by sin, they are dying, they are unglorified, are referred to as tents. Paul says, talks about if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed. And he says, while we are in this tent, we groan. So our bodies in the here and now, okay, are referred to as a tent. But in this passage, he's looking forward to when we're with the Lord. And remember, at the rapture, we receive glorified bodies. Bodies that are glorified like Jesus's was after he rose again from the dead. And 1 Corinthians 15, we haven't time to go through it now, but 1 Corinthians 15 talks about the properties of the glorified body we're going to get, um, you know, sort of like that is the same as Jesus. And it talks about the glorified body as opposed to the bodies that we've got now that are being destroyed, that are dying. So the point is, our natural body is referred to in the Bible as a tent, whereas our glorified body that we're going to get eventually one day is referred to as a building or a house, i.e. permanent, like the, ten like the temple was. 
So in verse 1, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by um, human hands. And uh, that, that, that word there, building from God, an eternal house, the word there is oikos, and it means house, all right. And, uh, and in verse 2, when he talks about our heavenly dwelling, uh, and in verse 4 he talks about our heavenly dwelling, the Greek word there is oikoterion, which means a habitation. So oikos, oikoterion. What they mean, they're houses. The, the, the point is, these words represent something that is solid and something that is lasting, as opposed to when he refers to our bodies down here as tents, when he uses the Greek word for a tent, which is skenos, all right. So the point is that what we're seeing um, is that our life down here in unglorified bodies, your body is a tent, the Bible refers to. And remember, the point about the tent was it was temporary. But when we get our glorified bodies, the Bible refers to them as permanent dwellings. In the same way the tabernacle, the tent was permanent, the temple was, uh, sorry, the tent was temporary, the temple was permanent. And in the same way that when we get our glorified bodies, then that is going to be completely, um, you know, sort of uh, completely permanent. You remember when we saw John 1.14, when it talked about the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. Um, there I, I said that the Greek word is skenu. It was the word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. So even Jesus' body, when he became a man, is referred to in the Bible as a tent. Because it was temporary. That body he had was destroyed. But then he was glorified. And then his body, as it were, became permanent. And in exactly the same way, we're going to be glorified like Jesus, receiving bodies that will never ever die, weather, get old, or anything at all. And of course, this idea that so many people have, that Christianity represents a heaven where you're kind of like sitting around in clouds, like spirits that you can virtually see through playing harps, that is complete mythology. Christianity doesn't represent that at all. Christianity represents us in an eternity that isn't going to be less solid than what we've got now. If anything, it's going to be more solid. It is going to be a physical eternity. In a way that we can't fully understand, there's no comparing it to our physicality down here. But we're not going to be disembodied spirits throughout eternity floating around in a place that hardly seems to exist. Our eternity is going to be having glorified bodies, just like Jesus's, on a planet Earth in a recreated universe that is perfect in every possible way. So, can you see that the Bible refers to our unglorified bodies as they are now subject to death as tents? But when we get our glorified bodies, or our heavenly dwelling, our oikoterians, then that is going to be permanent, solid houses, as opposed to the temporary nature of a tent. And if you just go to 1 Peter, back to 1 Peter in chapter 3, and in verse 8, 
sorry, to, to Peter, chapter 1 and verse 13, and it's just interesting when he says, I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body, because I know that I will soon put it aside. So there's Peter referring to his body as a tent, because he knew that it was only temporary, and of course, any day now, he was going to move out of it. And when he's moved out of his tent, like Israel moved out of their tents in the wilderness, they moved into something permanent. And one day we're going to move out of these bodies, and we're going to move out of the tent of these current bodies, and we're going to move into an oikotarian, a heavenly dwelling, as it were, of a body that is glorified just like Jesus's. Now, can you see something about the nature of the Lord here? In the wilderness, Israel lived in tents. So God lived in a tent. I mean, God, who fills heaven and earth and everything beside, came to live in a tent because his people lived in a tent. But in Canaan, they lived in houses. So God moved out of his tent into a house, just like them. We live in a human body. So what did God do? He came to live in a human body. He became a man. Now, can you see here the nature of God is such that he is always where we are. He is always going through what we are going through. When Israel were camping, God was camping. When they lived in houses, he lived in a house. We live in human bodies, so God became a man so he could live in a human body as well. Can you see, whatever we're going through, so is God. We have a God who identifies with us, and because he completely identifies with us, he sympathises with us as well, and is all the time sharing in whatever joys and sorrows we may or may not be going through. And the word sympathise in the Greek carries the idea of vibrating in sympathy. Do you remember physics in school? You get, a, you know, sort of like a, a, a glass and, you know, one of these things. If you strike a note at the same frequency of the glass, the glass rings in sympathy with the note. So something's happening here, and as a result of that something is happening, there's a vibrating in sympathy somewhere else. Well, God vibrates in sympathy with us all the time. When Israel were intense, he was intense. When Israel was in houses, he was in houses. When we live in human bodies, so God comes and lives in a human body. If you go to Hebrews chapter 4, and you'll see how the writer bring, brings this out. And this is absolutely fundamental to the very nature of the gospel, the very nature of God himself. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. And he says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us holdly, hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathise with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. 
Let us approach then the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Go to chapter 2, verse 18. And he says, Because Jesus himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. You see, God identifies with us in our every respect. He has been, he has become a human being. He knows what it's like. And can you see that this identification, God has identified with man. That this identification, this sympathy, this, this divine vibrating in sympathy, it's the very heart of the gospel. It's the very heart of God himself. He becomes the problem that needs solving. Two problems. Number one, man fell. So, first problem, humankind. So what does God do? He becomes a man. What was the problem with man? Well, it was sin. So what does God do? He became sin. He who knew no sin became sin, so that in him we might receive the righteousness of God. God beats the problem by becoming it. So God became a man to identify with us 100%. And we see this. Israel in tents, God in tents. Israel in solid buildings, God in solid buildings. We live in human bodies, so God becomes a man with a human body. So can you see that about the bodies, all right? Down here, a tent, because it's temporary. I'm going to move out this one day into my heavenly dwelling. Right, now then, one last. We're winding up now, but we've got to do the angels, okay? We've got to do the angels now. Go to Jude, because we've looked at human bodies. Now we've got to look at angelic ones. What? Angels don't have bodies, Beresford. Ah, well, maybe that's not quite correct. Go to Jude. Right, okay, now then. Going to read verse 6 to 9. The angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their own home, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. In the very same way, these dreamers pollute their own bodies, reject authority and slander celestial beings. But even when the Archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not dare to bring a slanderous accusation against him, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Now then, he's talking about some angels here. And obviously they're baddie angels. Demons are just baddie angels, that's all. Now then, we've just got to do a little bit of Greek here, all right? When it says that there were these angels who did not keep their positions of authority. Now in the King James Version, it's translated, they kept not their first estate. Now the actual Greek word is archi. An archi, remember God told Noah to build him an archi, archi, right? remember it like that. 
Archi, it means authoritative power in the Greek. So the idea is of a position of authority. I mean, we use the word archangel, archcriminal, archbishop. This, this word, position of authority, all right, that's exactly what it means. And we're talking here about some angels who gave up their position of authority. Hmm, interesting. And it says that they abandoned their own home. Now, in the King James Version, it's they left their own habitation. Now, the Greek, when it says they left their own home, the Greek word there is oikotirian. Now, that's the word that we found in 2 Corinthians 5 that Paul was using for a heavenly dwelling, as in a heavenly body. All right. And so therefore, when you put those two things together, we've got here a group of angels who gave up a position of authority and gave up their heavenly bodies. Now, what we have here are the angels referred to in Genesis 8, and we're going to see Peter referring to them as well, um, who exchanged their angelic bodies for human bodies. We have here almost, it's like genetic engineering that Satan got up to, all right. Now you'll remember the Bible says that Jesus was made a little lower than the angels. Because in the hierarchy, before Jesus died on the cross, you had God, then you had the angels, then you had man, and the animals and the vegetables and stuff like that, all right. Once Jesus died, you then had God, then you've got glorified humanity, then you've got angels, then you've got unbelievers, then you've got, you know, sort of, um, you know, sort of like the animals, vegetables, etc., etc. So the point is, in Old Testament times, human beings were lower in authority than the angels. So these angels gave up their position of authority because they became a kind of a half a hybrid angel human being and of course we're told in Genesis that they you know mated with the women and they brought this kind of like genetic half-breed that was neither angel nor fully human and of course the reason um, that Satan was doing this was because he knew that the Messiah was going to be a human being therefore his first attempt to prevent the coming of Messiah was if he could genetically re-engineer the human race, well then there wouldn't be a human race and Messiah couldn't come and he'd beat the plan of salvation. But of course what happened was that these angels who married women and had sex with them, all right, they were eventually, you know, God threw them down into Tartarus. And um, you know, again in verse eight and nine, you see all the time these dreamers pollute their own bodies. It's all about bodies. It's all about sexual perversion, Sodom and Gomorrah. Sex between two men is a perversion. Now, in the same way, angels having sex with women, that is a perversion. And so that's the comparison um, that he's making there. Um, if, you, if you go to 2 Peter chapter 2, we'll just see where Peter talks about them. 2 Peter chapter 2. And verse 4, and he says, For God did not spare the angels when they sinned. And these are the ones we're looking at. 
but sent them to hell. And if you look, that's Tartarus. The Greek word for hell there is Tartarus. This is the abyss. This is the bottomless pit, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, uh, he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. So what you've got here, here Peter is talking about these angels who were thrown down into Tartarus for what they did, and it's at the time prior to the time of Noah, and again Sodom and Gomorrah is mentioned because it was a sexual perversion between angels and mankind in the same way that men having sex with men or women having sex with, uh, you know, the same kind is a perversion as well. And so that's what you've got there. And that's why the Gadarene demoniac, the demons, they said to Jesus, don't, don't cast us into the abyss. Don't, don't send us down into Tartarus. I mean, Jesus wasn't planning to, but they knew that others of their comrades had been sent there hundreds of years before and they didn't want to join them. And then just winding up, if you read in Revelation 9, we won't read it now, but in the Great Tribulation, the bottomless pit, the abyss, Tartarus, the three names the Bible gives for it, is actually opened. And the demons who did that are, again, in the last days during the Great Tribulation, are going to be released onto the earth again. And they will cause absolute havoc. But in the meantime, they are consigned and kept in prison in Tartarus because of what they did. So there you can see that what was happening with those angels um, you know, in Genesis was that, that, that there were a group of angels, of demons, and they, they had the power, obviously, to actually exchange their angelic bodies for kind of human ones and therefore to actually procreate amongst human beings. The idea to actually try and genetically pervert the human race because obviously if there was no human race anymore messiah who was going to be human couldn't have come because there wouldn't have been any you know a human mother to to bear him and so that was satan's first major attempt to uh, muck up the plan of salvation right well okay temples bodies and tents etc etc uh, next week having got the historical context and the symbolism behind us next week we'll actually move into the uh, prophecies that Haggai brought to the people at the time.